Welcome to another episode of Chan with the Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. And in this episode, I will be speaking with Joseph Kim, who is the Director of Talent Acquisition at Kira Systems. We will be touching upon a wide array of topics when it comes to job searching, such as how to write a good resume, what he looks for in a resume when he's trying to see if someone's a good fit, interview tips, how to optimize your LinkedIn profile to stand out when recruiters are looking for your expertise to fill a position that they are recruiting for, and networking strategies to help you develop relationships with people at your target company to land your next opportunity. As I already mentioned, Joseph is currently the Director of Talent Acquisition at Kira Systems, and he helped lead the transformation of the company's strategy for finding and attracting the most diverse world-class talent. During his time at Kira Systems, he has led growth efforts to scale the company by more than 500%. He brings over 10 years of global experience building high-performance teams in the technology industry, where he has worked both in-house and on the agency side. Now let's get into my discussion with Joseph and discuss job search strategies, to help you land your next opportunity. Welcome to the show, Joe. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Max. It's been a while, eh? Since we, I know, uh, it's been uh, what, five years? <laughs> yeah, it's been way too long, man. Uh, we got to get together, grab some grub. Yeah. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, being able to share my experience with you. Yeah, so just a little background for my audience. So Joe and I met at Axtroing about like five years ago. And then uh, he went on to build the talent acquisition side of Kira Systems. And then I became a LinkedIn influencer. Yeah, man. Like when I, when I first saw uh, your postings, I was like super proud of you. I was like, definitely, it seemed like something that you were stepping out of your comfort zone, but really sharing your knowledge and helping other people out. And I'm always for helping other people. So if there's anything that I can shed light on today for your listeners, by all means, please ask, and I will do my best to give an answer that will be helpful. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And speaking of that, like, why don't you share a little bit about your experience in talent acquisition so people can understand why I brought you on here to share your uh, insights in recruitment? Sure, would love to do that. So I basically started my talent acquisition career in 2010 after doing a master's in HR uh, at U of T, I wanted to be that guy that people went to when they had questions about hiring. And so I really felt like getting an academic background would be the best way to go about it. Truth be told, it's really um, a, a great foundation, you know, bringing the academic and mixing that with the practical application of uh, talent acquisition. Uh, I really learned my chops on the agency side working for one of the top boutique talent, um, I guess, executive search firms in Toronto called Stonewood Group, uh, where I worked there for just over four and a half years, I think, and then joined a company called Scribble Live. I was there for three years, and that was like my first foray in-house and have been at Cura Systems since 2017. I'm almost at my four-year anniversary there, and I really helped Cura Systems scale from 30 people to over 240. Just to give you a bit of background about Cura Systems, uh, I'll, I'll plug the company a bit. Uh, basically, we've built a platform to help business professionals do document analysis 20 to 80% faster using machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so my values really aligned with the, the founders there and uh, I've been there ever since and it's been uh, a really great ride so far. How did you get your job at Cura? 
I actually got headhunted into Cura Systems while I was at Scribble Live. Um, I had helped that company grow from, I think when I first joined, it was like around 60 people. And we grow both organically and through um, acquisitions. So meaning that we grew headcount by, you know, just natural growth and by acquiring other companies. And, you know, it got to a point where I really felt like uh, I wanted to do it again. And I had the good fortune of meeting some talent professionals who thought that I might be a good fit for, with Kira. And so that's why I'm there today. And you've been on both sides. You've been a quote unquote third party recruiter and you're obviously now internally. So what's the difference between a third party recruiter or, or external recruiter compared to an in-house internal recruiter? That's a really good question. Uh, I think that the main difference between being an in-house recruiter and an agency side recruiter is, I think, motivation. Like being on the agency side, it's extremely transactional. Like some of the, the functions are the same. You're helping companies grow, but you feel less attached to the success of hiring. Whereas when you're in-house, uh, you're really building the company. You're the first person that candidates meet typically when it comes to uh, meeting the company. And you know you basically see your success every day with every new person that joins the company. And like that was something that I felt was really missing in my career was that sense of building. The agency side is fantastic, right? Like you're helping companies solve a very acute problem where they're having difficulty hiring a, a specific kind of role. Whereas, you know, when you're in-house, it becomes more of a strategic exercise, right? Like how can you scale a company? How do you grow a company in different areas? Like what are the things that you want to do uh, as you're growing the company from a values perspective, right? Like are you just trying to bring the best talent available? Like there's different philosophies. And like, I think those are the main differences. It's like, you know, what motivates you? Because you can make a, a ton more money working on the agency side than you can in-house. But at the end of the day, I, I really love building companies. And uh, that's why I'm still at Cura. When you talk about you make more on the agency side, like once you put a candidate in a company, you would get a commission or you, you would get some sort of percentage, right? So it's more, right. it, it's kind of like a sales role as well, right? Yes, that's exactly it. So typically speaking, if let's say Max, you hired me on as an agent or an executive recruiter to hire somebody on your team, typically speaking, the fee would be 30% of that, that person's uh, one year salary, right? So if it's a hundred thousand, right, then you would pay me $30,000, right? So I'd only have to make three or four hires in, in one year and I'd be sitting pretty, right? Whereas like when you're on the in-house side, like, you know, to make a hundred thousand, you, you might make a hundred thousand dollars, but your hiring volume is way higher. Going to that, in terms of a third-party recruiter where they, they would actually make more money like landing candidates into roles, like, well, why would a company want to hire external when they could just do their in-house hiring because they save money from the agency fee, right? Yeah, there, there's a number of reasons why you would go externally. Mainly, it's typically something where a company has a challenge when it comes to hiring. So if you were looking for a particular kind of role, let's say software engineer, 
Like everybody knows these days in the market that being a software engineer is super hot. It's a, it's a candidate's marketplace right now where they can basically pick any company that they want to work for, for an obscene amount of money. Right. And so it makes it really hard for in-house recruiters uh, like and teams like my team uh, to find really good software developers uh, to join uh, their company. And so they might go to an external agency who specializes in hiring software engineers. Right. And because they have a pool of candidates already, the turnaround time can be a little bit faster. Right. Or in a different instance, maybe the company needs to hire somebody at arm's length, right? Or it's confidential. Like, let's say you have uh, an executive leader uh, in the company that you want to replace, but you don't want them to know that you're replacing them, right? You would hire an agency to go into the market for you so that they can find you talent without, you know, potentially, you know, obscuring that relationship for the executive leadership team. That's like an, another instance. And then, and then the third one is like what I mentioned, arm's length, where let's say, you know, the company really just wants to find the best talent available as opposed to hiring, you know, the CEO's or the CFO's brother, right? To be like the CTO, right? They really want to find the best talent available, but they don't have the resources internally to do it. Right. So then that's when they would go and use an external recruiter uh, or even the board of directors might say, we want you to use an external recruiter because this is an important hire. Oh, I got So like an external agency already has a pool of candidates that will speed up the hiring process compared to potentially. internal. Wanna, yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Like, I mean, it's really about fit, right? Like you, you, you hope that, you know, the agency that you're working with has a larger candidate pool that they can draw from that and they can draw from immediately help the company hire uh, faster as opposed to the company waiting for candidates to apply to a certain role. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of the LinkedIn side of things, how much has LinkedIn grown in terms of essential tool when you were a third party agency recruiter compared to now when you're a director of talent acquisition at Kira? I think like if you don't have LinkedIn, you're not in the game, right? It's like basically it's the biggest sandbox out there for people to play in, right? And it's the biggest professional network in the world. So regardless of whether or not you're an agency recruiter or in-house, if you're not on LinkedIn, like you're not playing the game, right? It's, it's, it's a critical tool for success, uh, in my opinion, um, simply because there's no better database of uh, candidates out there uh, right now. Yeah, because uh, I, I work with clients and when I optimize their LinkedIn profile, they start getting recruiters uh, reaching out to them about, oh, we're looking for so-and-so type of position. 100%, yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's I, I would say it's the best way to market yourself externally, you know, aside from just applying to different roles, right? And you should you should really pay attention on what you put on your LinkedIn page. Like you should put as much information out there as possible to demonstrate your skills, knowledge, and expertise, as opposed to like, I've seen lots of people with just basically the barest profiles where it just has their role or their job plus the company they work for, right? That doesn't provide me any information as a recruiter or a talent acquisition professional 
to know whether or not you're actually qualified to join the company that I'm trying to build. Makes sense. And looking through the lens of a recruiter, obviously the profile on LinkedIn has multiple sections. There's the headline about work experience, education skills. What does a recruiter really look at, like focus on? Do they actually look at the about section before they go into work experience or they go straight to the work experience? I think it depends on the recruiter. The about section can be really helpful because it gives a quick snapshot of what it is that you are known to do. It's like your elevator pitch, right? Like without having to, um, you know, stand up in front of someone and say like, here, let me tell you about myself, right? I I think it will vary between recruiter uh, in terms of like what you want on your LinkedIn profile. But, you know, here's what separates a great profile from uh, an average profile, okay? The average profile will just have, you know, your title, the company you're at, and the things that you do day to day in your job, right? That's an average profile. If you want an exceptional profile that stands out from those average profiles, you'll not only want to mention the things you do day to day, but the kind of impact that you have on the company. So you'll want to provide like some data or or metrics that are measurable. So for instance, like if you're a sales executive, you know, you might want to say in my first year, I exceeded quota by 110% and expanded in these different geographies for the product that I'm selling. Right. As opposed to I sold, you know, widgets for this company. I agree with that. Even when I write resumes for clients, like I always want to highlight their quantifiable impact, right? Like X percent mm-hmm. increase or X revenue increase or what have you, right? Because yeah, a lot of people who write resumes, they just list their responsibilities, but they don't actually write their impact on the work. Yeah. And, and, and really like, you know, sure, you could have been a sales executive or a sales professional at another company. But, you know, if you didn't sell a single thing, like, you know, there's a good chance you would be terminated anyway, right? But, you know, there's got to be some metric out there that you're being measured against, right? Like, you know, you, you, you know, most companies have performance reviews or like an agreed upon set of responsibilities that you're supposed to achieve while you're in the role, right? So why not, you know, talk about those things like that, that you've been tasked to do, right? I mean, that's what you were hired for, right? And that really demonstrates your knowledge and expertise there, right? Yeah, it doesn't have to be commercial numbers like revenue. It could be no, your KPIs, not. right? Your KPIs, KPIs from your performance. KPIs, yeah. yeah. Yeah, your key performance indicators for sure. You know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I can't share this information because it's confidential to the company. Yes, that's true. Like certain things like revenue numbers, right? Like those would be like confidential. But like you can talk about, okay, I, I was given a certain quota and I exceeded it, Right. So you can give the how much you exceeded your quota by and not give up what your quota was, right? To demonstrate that you were successful in the role, right? You don't do first round screening calls anymore, right? Actually, these days I am. I'm still doing them. You're still doing them? Oh. I'm still doing them. Very recently, I I got back into doing it with my team. Part of it is to make sure that I still have my my hand on the pulse of like what the market is doing and what the market is saying. But, you know, you know, much like many companies, Kira went through a, a really difficult year uh, during COVID. And so, you know, now we're all hands on deck, right? Uh, we have a certain goal in mind. And, you know, I think the sign of like a, a good company and good leadership is like rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty, um, even when, uh, you know, 
your rule typically does not say that you're supposed to be doing those things. Well, that's good. Like if, if you're so high up and you don't go into trenches, you don't really know what's going on, right? Exactly. So like if my team were to tell me like, Joe, we're having a, a hard time finding candidates for a particular role, right? And I don't know what the market looks like, then, you know, it's just, you know, we're not able to share ideas as to how can we sort of navigate this problem together. It's just me receiving feedback and then saying, okay, well, then you need to do this, right? At least now we can start collaborating and working together to solve a problem as opposed to, you know, just, you know, basically throwing darts at a board and hoping something will stick. Before I get more into how you do a first round screening call, let's go to the online application process. Uh, So I'm assuming you use ATS, right? The applicant tracking system, like some sort, one of the companies that does it, you have it, right? Yeah, we we use a a platform called Lever. And basically this applicant tracking system, as all applicant tracking systems do, is create a job posting in the applicant tracking system, and then it'll post it on your careers page and maybe to a different different number of job posting sites like Indeed or Monster or whatever. And then, you know, that's where you get your applicants. Your applicants will apply to the role and then they will all be funneled into this this platform so that you can see who the candidates are. Um, so yeah, we, we all use, you should be, if you don't have one and you're a company that's hiring, you should get one. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think all the big companies, even midsize do have one, right? Yeah. 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 Like it's, it, it, I think any company that's serious about growth needs to get past or get away from having people apply using email and using spreadsheets to organize their candidates. Right. Do people still do that? I, I've never, I've never done that. I've never seen yeah, that. Yeah, people still do that. Companies, some companies still do that, right? Um, but I, I think it's a resourcing issue, right? But there's like a lot of very, very cost-effective applicant tracking systems now that offer basic utility um, that will allow you to keep your searches or your your job requisitions on track and like organized so that you're not having to, you know, organize things and excel yourself like like doing that database management is a huge pain in the ass, right? Yeah. So in terms of uh, your program that gets put on your career page on your site and then goes on like different sites like Indeed, does it matter where the person applied from? Like if someone applies straight to the site, do you get, is there a better, do, is there more preference because they actually looked at your company or it doesn't really matter? No, I don't, I don't think it really matters, right? Like, you know, the, the end goal for the applicant tracking system is to get your your job posting as widely distributed as possible in front of as many eyes as possible. Sure, like the source would be, is, is fantastic when you're measuring metrics internally. Like where are we finding the best candidates? Like, should we be investing more in that particular channel? But aside from that, it, it doesn't really matter from where you apply. The only, the only time it actually makes a huge difference is when you're referred into a company by a company's employee. Like you are 10 times more likely to get hired by referral than you are by cold application. Yeah. And speaking of cold applications, I've, t- I've talked to people that are in the space and majority of the applicants that you get aren't qualified, right? Yeah, I would say, yeah, that, that's, that's probably true. Like, I, I think that many people are so desperate to find a job or a role within a company, they'll apply to every single job in the company. Or it's just the unfortunate circumstances of like COVID, right? Like some jobs are hotter than others. 
right? And uh, some people aspire to be in certain roles, right? And I'm not suggesting that just because you're not qualified, you shouldn't apply to them because really like, you know, as uh, talent acquisition professionals, like we're really looking for capability, you know, over, you know, pure experience, like experience helps. That's like a great predictor of future success. But what we really want to see is whether or not you're capable of doing the role. So going back to the creation of the job ads, so how do you create a job ad? So I think this is pretty common for most talent acquisition professionals and companies is that a hiring manager will have a hiring need, right? Let's say your finance team is looking for an accountant, right? The accountant or the senior finance professional, the hiring manager and the talent acquisition professional will get together and try to hash out, hey, what are the things that we need for this person to be able to do, right? And so those are the things that you will typically see under experience or what you'll be doing, right? And then, you know, what are things that this person needs to bring to the table, right? What are the skill sets, right? And if it's like an accountant, like certain things like education are important. It matters, right? Like CPA, can't just hire somebody that says they're an accountant without a CPA, right? So like designations will be important, uh, for instance. And so we try to get all the things that the person will be doing in the job, as well as the things that they will need in order to be successful. And that's how we create the posting typically, right? And then we also try to capture what it's like to be a part of the team and, you know, what it's like to be joining the company, like the kind of company that you're joining. So it's a collaboration between the hiring manager and the uh, talent acquisition individual. It should be. Right. Only because like if your talent acquisition professional is the one that's going to be doing all the initial screening, they better know what the job entails. That's not always the case, though. Oh, what do you mean? So the, like the hiring manager is too busy and then you have to make something up or? <laughs> no, it's it's usually the, the, the talent acquisition professional may not even know what's on the job description because the job like the job description was created by the hiring manager and they just post it. Right. And so, you know, I think the more sophisticated a talent acquisition team becomes, right? The the more knowledge and expertise they have for hiring a partic- particular type of role or a function, right? So like, for instance, on my team, uh, the talent acquisition professionals have business units that they support so that they can better understand the nuances of what's going on in that business unit and also build their network for those kinds of professionals, right? So... One of my colleagues, she specializes in uh, operations, right? So she supports the operations side of the business. So that would be anywhere from finance to the people side, like HR side, you know, compliance and IT. And so she's starting to build out her networks because, you know, she knows that's the part of the business that she'll be, be supporting, right? And then she also knows the nuances of the business and has developed relationships with the hiring manager and is really partnering with the hiring manager so that they have a much better idea of what's going on in the marketplace. And it's more of a partnership than, uh, you know, somebody just, you know, telling us what to do and we posting us posting a role and praying that the right applicant will come along. There's obviously different advice in terms of you need like 70% of it or 80%. So in, in your uh, opinion, how much experience or qualifications should one have that matches the job at before they should consider applying to stand a chance? I, I think, you know, it really depends on the scrutiny of the talent acquisition team, 
right? Like, and how high their bar is in terms of like wanting to hire somebody in the role successfully, right? Like who will be successful in the job, right? If you can somehow demonstrate or, or show that you have a similar set of skills and expertise, despite the fact that you were not in a, the exact same role, I think that you'll be able to go further along in the process. But I'll tell you right now, many talent acquisition professionals are very biased towards you having done the role before or the job before, unless you are like applying for an early career job, right? They will want to have seen you do something similar in similar capacity as opposed to taking a chance. That's a good point you're making. So these experts are saying, oh, you, you, like these are just a wish list. Like not everybody has 100% of this job responsibility. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that, again, it's, it, it based on, it's based on the team, right? So sometimes they want a closer match compared to others. That's right. Yeah. Like uh, I would say like at Kira Systems, we try, to, we try to be as open-minded as possible. But a lot of the roles that we hire for are basically mission critical for the success of the company. Right. So depending on whether or not we have an appetite to take a, a, a bit more risk and be more open to the kinds of candidates that are applying or that we're looking for, we try to look for somebody that has been there and done it before already. So you make a good point there. So let's say I'm a marketing specialist at a company and you posted a job for marketing manager. Since I've never been a marketing manager before, even though I have some of the responsibilities of a marketing manager, I would not be a closer match compared to someone that's already a marketing manager applying for the job, right? Yes and no, right? Like, so as you know, there's different disciplines of marketing, right? So let's say, you know, you're a demand gen specialist and like another person is a, what, I don't know, a growth marketing manager, let's say, right? Or a campaign manager, campaign marketing manager, but I'm looking for a demand generation manager, right? You know, there's a good chance the demand gen specialist or associate is going to have more experience and expertise and knowledge about being a demand gen manager than, you know, a campaign manager, campaign marketing manager may have. So I would tend to lean towards somebody that has the right knowledge and skills because we can coach you to become a leader. We can coach you to become a manager, right? Like I said, it really depends on the situation, right? Like depends on the hiring manager and like what kind of appetite they have for looking at candidates with a different discipline, right? As opposed to the, the, the specific discipline that they're looking for in order to hire for, right? And that's really why having a good talent acquisition partner is critical for the success for, for many hiring managers in their roles today. The biggest myth, I'm hoping this is a myth, is that these ATS like all the reject candidates. So if it's if they're not matched to a certain degree, let's say it's only like a five percent match, a human will not actually look at the resume. Is that true? That's not true, right? That's false. Hundred percent yeah. false. At, at least with Cura Systems, it's false, right? Like you know, there's a lot of applicant tracking systems that try to do like word matching to see whether or not a person has those words on their resume. I think government does that a lot, actually. But at Cura Systems. Every single resume is viewed by a a human being, right? By a talent acquisition professional that knows what the talent or what the hiring manager is looking for in order to hire for a particular role. One of the roles that I hired for most recently had over 250 applicants. I looked at every single resume, right? 
Like there isn't a time where we rely on the applicant tracking system to do the work for us. It may make it easier for us to do the work by presenting it in a fashion in which we can flip through the resumes more quickly and more easily. But every single resume that comes through uh, our applicant tracking system at Cura Systems, we, we read. All right, so the ATS is more of a organizer than something that would do the work for you or make it quicker, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, not to say that technology is not leaning in that direction. I, I mean, I just told you my company does exactly that, but for document analysis. And really, a resume is a document. Like You could conceivably train artificial intelligence and machine learning to do the same kind of work, but really, like it would be missing a lot of the nuance, right? Because it would only be taking inputs in from one source of data, which is the resume, right? Whereas, you know, a talent acquisition professional knows what the market is like, has been talking to candidates, you know, has been doing market research, right? And so they look at more than just the resume before they decide whether or not a candidate should advance, right? They're really trying to see whether or not there's going to be a fit. So you said 250 resumes, right? Is that what you said before? Mm -hmm. So over 250. uh, Okay, over 250. So how much time do you spend looking at each resume? Like people say like under 10 seconds, under six, like what's, what's your, what's your <laughs> Again, average? I think that also depends, right? Like on the kind of role that you're hiring for. Some resumes or some roles require greater scrutiny for resume screening than others, right? So if it's an entry level role, like there's not going to be a lot of information on a resume, right? It might just say what school you went to and what clubs you were a part of, Right. But if you are like a director of engineering, I'm going to want to know like what kind of projects you built. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I can say like on average, I spend 10 to 15 seconds on a resume, but that's not absolutely true, right? It might be 10 to 15 seconds on a resume for for somebody that's early in their career. But like when it's like something that requires greater scrutiny, like it can be, you know, two, three minutes, right? Because I want to know whether or not a, does this person have the qualifications? And B, does that, this person have the experience or the sk- skills or the knowledge that we need in order to be successful, right? So y- you can't just, you know, offhand say, like, looking at somebody's resume, it's going to take, you know, 10 to 15 seconds. But yeah, it, it, it can be as short as 10 seconds and as long as two to three minutes, depending on the role, I think. And depending on the, how you present the information on your resume. Yeah, that makes sense because you're not going like, to, if it's like a VP of engineering, you're not going to look at a resume for 10 seconds. Like you probably want to like give a closer look on like if this person actually qualified, right? Yeah. Like have they architected something of a similar thing before, right? Like what, like how many teams did they lead? Like, you know, were they in a scrum environment, right? Like what kind of platform did they build? Was it a, a SaaS B2B platform like Curious? If it's not, like, it's probably less likely they're going to be successful in this kind of role, right? If it was, like, something off the shelf, like, you know, where you install it, like, you know, it's antiquated technology. That's not something that we need here, right? If you've been, like, we we kind of, like, use best practices in our technology environment where we try to draw from agile as well as, like, certain aspects of waterfall. But, like, I wouldn't say that we're 100% waterfall or 100% agile, right? Like, somebody that has a mix of both would be highly useful, right? And like, you know, it, it, like, like, like I said, it really depends on the role that you're hiring for, right? And so some things require a lot more scrutiny than others. And like, 
if it's not a role that I've hired before, it may take me a bit longer to get through, right? But, you know, I should add, Max, like the resume is still your most important document in terms of selling yourself, right? So it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So if your resume doesn't demonstrate how much knowledge you possess or how good you are at your job, like there's a good chance, like I will screen your resume in in 10 to 15 seconds and say, this person is not qualified. If you don't put that information on there, you may, you want to make me want to read your resume, right? Don't make, don't give me an excuse to only give it 10 seconds because I got 249 other applications that I have to go through, right? Like give me a reason to understand why I should hire you as opposed to giving me a reason why you should be in the garbage can, like your resume should be in the garbage can, so to speak. Right. So what's a perfectly formatted resume in Joe's world? Like, let's say kind of information at the top, executive summary, uh, professional work experience, education. So what's a good formatted resume that people should follow? You know, things that will help me cut to the chase, right? Like I just said, like, my, you know, if I'm going through 250 applications, like, and I'm not going to go through, and, and it comes over time, right? It's not like I get all 250 at once, Right. It's like, it's sort of gate stage as things come in or as I headhunt people, right? A really great resume will provide a lot of the basic information of like, you know, the kind of company that you are at, right? So some people just put like the company they're working at, right? Without any context, right? So if I don't know what company like um, XYZ is, like what it does, it doesn't provide me any information as to whether or not I should move forward with reading the rest of this resume. Yes, you have the, let's say, VP of engineering title, right? But if it's like a VP of engineering and X company XYZ is like an oil and gas company and I'm a software development company, right? Like that doesn't help me at all. But like, let's say that oil and gas company has like a software development division, right? Because they build all their, all their platforms in-house right? because they felt like, you know, it's the most cost-effective way of doing things. Like that would be super helpful information for me to understand, right? So it's just like, not just telling me the kind of company that you're at, but adding context as to what you did for that company or what your division did for the company, right? And then the things that you did in that role and the impact that you had, right? Like how did you help, you know, the comp company achieve success, right? Or even if the company wasn't successful, how did you support your company or, or your team or your business unit be successful? despite how difficult the situation was like, cause not everybody is in like a rosy environment where everything is rainbows and sunshine, right? Like some people work in very challenging environments and like we're cognizant of that as talent acquisition professionals, right? But that doesn't mean you can't have had positive impact, right? So it's all in how you position yourself really. You said you review every resume. So people recommend that you would ta you tailor the resume a bit to match the job ad, how mm -hmm. far should someone go without overdoing it? Uh, if it's basically word for word a job ad, like, like we'll know it because we wrote it, right? I, I would say like, if there are things that you actually did, just be honest about it, right? And then there, there are gonna be things that we may not have thought about that the role may re require, right? And that will come out in like the interview, right? Because like, uh, I'm not the only one that reads your resume. like. Let's say you get to the, the screening phone call. I'm going to go through your, your work history, 
right? And try to understand how, what you did and how you did it, right? But then like, you know, based on that, like the hiring manager is also going to want to see your resume and be like, hey, oh, this is a skill set that I didn't even think I needed, right? And so, yeah, like there, there are certain things that are going to be on the job description that are going to be fairly critical, but, you know, there are other things that you may be able to bring to the table that we haven't even thought about. So I, I think it's kind of like applicant's discretion on how closely things resemble the job ad. I would say more to the fact that like, you know, let's say you're, it's not the exact same rule, but you have transferable skills, highlight those skills and like show how much impact that you had. Right. Like I, I've talked to a lot of applicants and candidates who have great work experience, but have never worked in Canada before. And they're really worried about joining or trying to get a job in Canada, not having any Canadian experience, make that irrelevant, right? Make that irrelevant by showing like, you know, the recruiter or the hiring manager, the skills that you bring to the table. Like most applicants that come from outside of Canada will try to just show they can do the job like tactically, but they don't show the kind of impact that they've had in the organization that they were with. Right. Or the kind of work that was required in order to be successful where they were. Right. You don't necessarily have to take a step back because you're a new Canadian and are trying to join a company, right? You just have to be able to demonstrate that you have the capabilities, skills, and experience that will make our company be successful. Get rid of the mindset of you have different crutches. Just make yourself as relevant to the job as possible. That's exactly it, right? Like, it's easy to say, yeah, if you you basically copy what the job description says, like, uh, you'll get the job, right? But like, again, those are just the tactical things day to day that you will be doing, right? If you can show me that you did those things in your job and show me demonstrable impact, like the data that I was talking about, that's more important as opposed to just matching what the job ad says. Does your uh, company uh, emphasize on cover letters or no? We don't, but you know, I think it's up to the talent acquisition professional as to whether or not they read the cover letter or not. If you take the time to write a cover letter, I'll read it but I don't necessarily think that every application needs a cover letter. I think a cover letter is really important to highlight, hey, I might not have the exact job title that you were looking for, but here are the skills that I bring to the table and this is why I think you should hire me or at least interview me uh, so that I can you know, have a better sense of things that you've done, right? So if, you, if you've taken the time to write a cover letter and it's not generic, because like you can tell when it's a generic cover letter, I've received like enough cover letters where it had the wrong company name and even the wrong, like not even my name, it had somebody else's name on there. Like, I'll be like, okay, th- this is a reason for me to throw this application in the garbage, right? But like, if you're being super mindful as to why you think, um, you know, uh, it's worth us having a conversation, put it down in a cover letter. Like, you know, I'll read it. Like my team will read it. But is it absolutely necessary? No. It's not absolutely necessary, but if you take the time to draft one, we will, you know, pay you the courtesy of reading it. That, that's a good way to look at it. So it's optional at your company, but if you want to do one, like do one properly, like don't do a template one just to put it in there. Yes, exactly. Because you're, then you're just wasting everybody's time, including your own, right? So I'm assuming for Kira, there's an online portal that you apply and you upload documents, right? 
Mm-hmm. Is there cool. anything else that someone should upload besides the resume and potentially the cover letter? Definitely. Like, so for instance, let's say we're hiring a graphic designer or a product designer. If you have like a portfolio that shows like the kind of like body of work that you've done, that's super helpful, right? Or if you're a content marketer, like the different kinds of content that you might've written, that's super helpful. As long as it doesn't violate any sort of like confidentiality agreement that you have with a previous company or a previous employer or client. Yeah. Like we'd love to see stuff like that. We don't really care about what school you went to or what grades you received, right? Especially if you've been working for 10 years. So don't upload your transcript. Like we don't, we don't really care, right? Like, cause like, that's like a, a bias in terms of source, right? Like I don't, I don't need Harvard graduates applying to Cura systems. What I need are good software developers who know their shit, right? Who know how to solve a problem. And you don't have to have gone to Harvard in order to be able to solve problems, right? Or work with people or, you know, you know, be super collaborative. Like it's, it's like one of those things where you just want to be working with like, like genuinely good or nice people that are competent at what they do. That makes sense. And going through the portfolio thing, when you work at different companies, there's obviously confidential stuff. So if you're doing content marketing, that you probably can't put it in your portfolio unless it's public to the eye, right? With that being said, having some sort of side gigs or some sort of creative outlet that you can create your own type of projects for like clients, that could actually bolster your uh, credentials, right? Yeah, at least it'll demonstrate like the kind of style you have, right? So like, and, and, and I'm fairly certain that every designer out there that's worth anything, like worth their salt, has like a portfolio of like, you know, their own thoughts and their own ideas and things that they put together, not necessarily for a client, but because they just love creating, right? They have a curious mind. Like those are things that like we kind of value at Kira. And so, yeah, like, you know, just, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain anyway, most, most creatives or most designers that are, are any good at what they're doing are doing more than just the client work or confidential work that they're working on. That, yeah, that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And in terms of a new grad that we, we discussed that doesn't have a lot of work experience, obviously, you probably heard the saying about how entry-level positions require two to three years of experience, and a lot of these grads don't have that. Does your company hire like new grads or grads with not a lot of experience? Or what type of advice you can give to these people in terms of like trying to get their first corporate job out of university college? Yeah, very frequently, we, we hire people that don't have the exact work experience that we're looking for, right? You know, some of the, 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 the first few hires I did for Cure were people who had just graduated from an undergraduate program, right? I think the best way to demonstrate success there is, like, as, as much as we don't really care about grades, like, we do care about the things that you do in school, right? So if you were part of a club and you were, let's say, the club treasurer, and you're trying to get into like a, a finance role, like, you know, that shows us like, you know, you have a basic knowledge of finance or accounting, right? Or if you worked in retail, right? Like those, those soft skills are so valuable, right? Especially for client facing roles, right? Like it means you know how to work in stressful environments, right? Like there's, there's nothing more uh, high pressured than trying to like keep a customer happy when there's a lineup of 10 other customers behind them trying to order their latte, right? Like, you know, being able to keep calm and collect it under pressure, like that's the kind of person that we want, you know, in front of our customers who aren't going to lose their mind if uh, they have a difficult question, right? 
on our client support side, right? So it's like, there are certain roles that really lend themselves to people early in their career, like client support, business development representative, you know, you can really build your career on. And a lot of Kieran's have done that. Let's say someone worked at McDonald's and flipped burgers. So you would put down the resume, but highlight the soft skills that you were able to develop. Like I, I know some some career experts or whatever, you would try to oversell your skills. Like for example, I deliver 200 burgers every afternoon or something silly like that, right? But I, I, I personally think that's overdoing it. So you want to highlight more, like be more realistic and like, yes, we know you flip burgers, but what soft skills do you develop? Is, do you know yeah, what I'm trying to say? at least yeah. progression, right? Like, you, you know, uh, that song, uh, Gold Digger by Kanye? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he first mopping floors and now he's making fries or whatever. I can't remember the line, right? Like, but at least show some sort of development and progression in your career, even if you are at working at McDonald's, right? Because it, it demonstrates to us that you have a commitment to doing the best kind of work that you can do in the environment that you're in, right? Like, like that's what that demonstrates, right? Like upward progression within an environment that's difficult. Man, like what better environment than like working in retail? Uh, like we've all like been a difficult customer in the past, right? So we can all empathize or we've all seen or experienced some difficult customer in front of us in line and feeling bad for the, the customer service rep uh, that's that's on the other side, right? So, so yeah, like demonstrating progression is like highly valuable. So yeah, I don't need to know how many burgers you flipped, right? But like, you know, did you start mopping floors and then were promoted to flipping burgers, right? And then what was the next step for you there, right? How long did you last in that environment, right? Most people in those retail environments last maybe a few weeks, maybe a couple months, right? But let's say you held down that job your entire high school career, right? Like every day after work or after school, twice a week, you worked at McDonald's, right? And slowly progressed up the ranks. Like that is an amazing story, right? That is somebody I want on my team because it shows commitment and it demonstrates they know how to work in difficult environments. Yeah, like we've all been there. The entry level, like flip burgers or retail, like these are very high pressure situations, especially a lunch rush at a McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, right? Like the, I, I can't think of like a more difficult situation in life. And like, that's why so many people want to get away from it, right? So it, it makes sense, right? At the end of the day, but you know, like being being a part of that environment and having survived that environment, like just demonstrates to me that you have like the ability uh, to thrive in complex or difficult environments or in environments in which you work in isolation, right? Because when you're when it's the lunchtime rush, all you're doing is making sure that that patty doesn't burn, right? And you're assembling burgers, right? So there's a sense of alienation, but like you know that that person can work through those crunch periods effectively. You make a good point. You, you go to school to get a good education so you don't go back to flipping burgers, right? In a right. high stressful situation. Yeah, but some people may love flipping burgers, right? Like that that is their jam, right? If you love flipping burgers, be the best goddamn burger flipper there is, you know? Like, you know, I wanna see like, you know, awards for your burger flipping capability, right? Like, like that to me is like super impressive. Like that's a that's a great story to me. Like, Max, if you were to tell me, Joe, I am the 2019 Big Mac Assembly Champion in Eastern Canada. Man, I fucking love that story. Like, 
tell me, how did you get there? How many people did you beat out? Like, you know, that's like a, a sign of somebody that's committed to their job and doing a job well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Let's go back to Kira. So how many candidates do you shortlist for a first round screening? And how long does it take for you to get back to someone? So let's say you have the opening in Mon- on Monday. People apply. Uh, when do you start shortlisting and start reaching out to people? Well, if if, if uh, I think your if your listeners have been paying attention, like we partner very closely with the hiring manager, so we kind of have a good idea of what we're looking for, right? So you know, let's say within three applicants, like two of them are really good, right? And we only have three applicants. I'll move those two applicants forward to the next stage of the process, right? It really depends on the quality of applicant. Or if let's say there's zero, let's say a hundred people applied and there wasn't a goddamn applicant that was worth screening, right? Then I'll have to go into the market and look for people with this title, like on LinkedIn, and ask them to apply, right? And see if they're open to a new job opportunity, right? So like my team is not only tasked to screen applicants, but they are also tasked to go into the market and source candidates as well, meaning that they will look for the right kind of candidate to fill the job, right? As for like how many applications does it take? There's no, it's it's like rolling admissions for university, right? Like if there's a qualified student that's going to go to, let's say U of T, they have like, you know, the minimum set of requirements like you know grades and like clubs and whatever we'll look at that applicant it doesn't matter when we don't have like a critical mass that we have to achieve before we move forward typically speaking 80 to 90 percent of applicants are screened out during the resume screen so what you're trying to say is as long as the job posting is open you should apply so it's not like oh i missed the boat uh, it's already there is like no boat years. that you have missed but right. if there is an applicant that's further along in process you know hopefully the team lets you know Hey, like, you know, not to discourage you, we think you have a great application, but there is somebody in final rounds of interviewing with the company, but would you remain interested in still going through the process, right? Because you never know, like that, that person may or may not decide to join Cura, right? And like, just because somebody's much further along doesn't necessarily mean that they'll get hired, Right. Because what if they fail the background check, right? Like then all of a sudden, like all the, like, oh shoot. Like there was like all these great applicants. I rejected them because we had this person in final rounds. You can't do that. Like you, what you really got to be sure is like you keep the pipeline open and are talking to as many candidates as possible, no matter what stage of the, I guess the job life cycle you're in. I don't know if you're going to answer this because uh, it's a bit private, but in terms of the background check, and do, do you also check references as well? Yeah, well, we definitely check references. But like we do reference checks a little bit differently at Cura Systems because like it's very rare for a candidate to give somebody, like, give a company bad references, right? Like, I mean, unless you're a dumbass, you're not going give, to give the company that you want to hire you bad references. What we're trying to achieve at Cura Systems when it comes to reference checks is not... Like, you know, did this, like, you know, what are Max's strengths and weaknesses? I want to talk to your manager so that I can find out, hey, Max worked for you for this amount of time. How can we support Max best to help him be successful? 
those are the questions that I want to ask as a reference, right? Not because like everybody's going to say Max was great to work with or, you know, Max works too hard and like, you know, that's his greatest weakness. Like, you know, people are always going to give you like those canned bullshit responses, right? But at the end of the day, if you're going to be my new colleague, Max, I want to understand how I can help you be successful, right? And so like, that's really what the reference check is for, right? And then I have a a second reason why I do references, right? If I hire you, Max, there's a good chance that the reference that you give me might also be somebody that I want to bring into the company. Because if you're great, there's a good chance that the person that you work with is also great. So I want to get to develop a relationship with that person to see whether or not there might be a fit for other roles in the company in the future that might be worth talking about. Well, that, that, that's pretty smart. I, I, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's, well, it's kind of like a strategic thing that I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a, it's a Joe special. <laughs> it's, it's not just a Joe special, but it's what I train my team to do too as well, right? My team does exactly the same thing, right? When they do reference checks, it's not just to see like whether or not like, you know, you know, you have strengths and weaknesses. It's like we want to figure out how to help you be successful, how to keep you engaged, how to keep you motivated, right? And then also, hey, does Max's buddy seem like a good person to hire as well. Because like if we're growing, it's like the war for talent to finding really great colleagues to work with is really, really hard, right? And if you know, you're know you great, Max, there's a good chance your buddy Joe is also great. So has someone not been hired because the background check or the reference check fell through? I would say like in any company, like one to 3% may fail the background check, right? And like for us, like people will have failed the background check for an integrity issue, right? Like, you know how I said, like, you know, we don't actually care whether or not you have a degree from a certain school, right? Like some people will have gone to that school, right? But not have finished the program, right? But they'll say that they finished the program. For us, integrity is a huge value uh, at Cura, right? So if you lie about getting this degree and we catch you in that lie, we're not gonna hire you. We're gonna rescind the offer, right? It's just integrity thing. If you're upfront about it and be like, hey, Joe, I, I went to U of T, did three years, but then I decided, you know, software development was my passion and I just started working on building great software. I'd be like, that's cool, right? Like, at least you were honest about it. You didn't tell me that you finished the program, right? Like that to, that to me shows integrity, right? And the fact of the matter is like, there's a good chance if we're colleagues, we're going to become friends. Like, do you... Do you want to be friends with somebody that lacks integrity? Probably not. So you're saying there's a war on talent right now and probably going to be a lot higher as with COVID like soon to be ending because everyone's getting vaccinated. A lot of people that mm-hmm. wanted to leave jobs last year are probably going to leave now and there's going to be an influx, right? So mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get at is how do you compete with the big Benamos that everybody wants to work for? So like the Googles of the world and, and like Amazons and stuff like that. I, I think it's just... You know, you know, demonstrating like, you know, the kind of things that really resonate with you. Okay. So, and, and by you, I mean, like the things that resonate with me, right? I love being in exciting, ambiguous environments where we have a growth plan. We don't know if it's going to work, but I'm not doing the same thing every single day for a big bank, right? Like, I don't want to kill myself at the end of the day. I always think about like, if I were to ever retire or, or like want to slow down my career, 
I'll go into an environment that is larger where, you know, the stress of trying to scale is not as, as heavy, right? The things that I think resonate with people that want to work in a scale-up environment like Kira Systems is like, you know, will the company take good care of me, right? Am I working on interesting problems? You know, am I being compensated fairly, right? Like those are like generally the like the things that most people care about, compensation, you know, how, how people are treated and, you know, really ensuring that their values are aligned with the people that they're working with. Throughout the, the talent acquisition process, should you be in an interview process with any company, you should be asking these questions to all the people that you might potentially be working with, that might be your colleagues. Like, hey, what, what, what excites you about the things that you do every day? Like, what do you love most about this company? Like, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing, right? So that you have much better context of the environment that you're getting yourself into, right? Like no place is perfect, right? Everybody has their own challenges. It just, you know, which company has the kinds of challenges that are interesting to you or the ones that you can live with, right? And still do a good job. Everybody wants to work at these companies, but the average tenure at these companies are fairly low. I think it's about two to three years. Mm -hmm. So they like the brand name, but then they realized it didn't really resonate with them in terms of their career goals. So they end up just Mm -hmm. doing something else, right? And a lot of these big organizations, like the career path to getting from, you know, entry level position to like a senior manager is quite long, right? Like it may take 10 to 12 years within one of these companies, like one of these bigger companies. Whereas like if you're in a tech startup, you may start in an entry level position and be like a C-level executive within that company because like it's still small and scaling within five years, right? It really depends on like what your own goals are and like what you're hoping to achieve and the amount of time, like what your time horizon is, right? And really like, I can't stress this enough. Like do your values align with the company or the leadership's values at that company, right? Because if it doesn't, you're going to be miserable every day, right? Like you're not going to be able to bring your authentic self to work, right? Like Max, like I got to know the authentic Max throwing axes at battle, right? Like that was so much fun. Found out how cool a guy you were. Like, don't you want to be able to bring that version of Max to the job that you're at every single day? Probably yes, right? Yeah, like a lot of people have to put on a a front at work and then Mm -hmm. their personal life, they're a completely different personality because they're they're afraid that their personal side might might not gel well with the company, right? So they put on that front at work. Mm -hmm. And then- since they're not aligned with their values, they're not really happy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's the thing, like try to figure out whether or not your values are aligned to the company first and like whether or not, like, you know, you'll find out fairly quickly, like, and you can just basically Google or Glassdoor or a company to see whether or not they take care of their employees. Right. But yeah, like really see whether or not your values jive with the, the values of the company or, or at least the person that you're working for like the manager, right? Because like a good manager can insulate you from a lot of bullshit anyway, right? Maybe not everything, but a lot. So at least if your values are aligned with the hiring manager and you guys get along, fantastic, right? But there's nothing worse than joining a company where your values aren't aligned with that of your manager or the company, 
And speaking of Glassdoor, does your team ask what their salary expectations are or no? In terms of like uh, the first round stream call, like some some companies will say, "Oh, what salary are you expecting, or what salary are you looking yeah, for?" Yeah, yeah, we we do ask, right? Because like it's 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 another point of data for us, right? We want to be able to help hiring managers figure out what we should be compensating candidates, right? So you're you're not the only person that we're asking, if that's what you're asking, right? Like we'll ask every single candidate that gets to that point in the interview process, like you know what they're hoping for in terms of salary. Right. Because internally, we also have a range in which we feel is fair. Right. So if it's way outside of that range, we're not aligned. Right. There's no point. Right. Like, Max, if, you know, you think like, you know, you should be getting paid 50 grand and we think you should be getting paid 75 grand. Right. We're not going to shortchange you and say, hey, you only wanted 50 grand. So we're only going to pay you 50 grand. Like any company that has any sort of integrity will be like, Max only expected 50, but this role in market pays 75. So we're going to pay Max 75, right? But it also works the other way. Like Max, if you're looking for 125 grand, but our range is like, you know, between 70 and 75, we'll be like, Max, unfortunately, like your compensation range or your compensation ask is way outside of our range, right? And there's probably not an alignment here, right? And we'll tell you what our range is right? For that role, right? Uh, and then and then you can decide whether or not you want to move forward in process. But there's a good chance if your expectation is that far offside, you probably won't want to go through the process. That's fair. And how does one find good, accurate market data for the position? Because a lot of uh, candidates, they hate being asked that salary expectation question because they don't want to lowball themselves and they don't want to go too high and then they end up being disqualified, right? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I think what you need to be doing is asking other professionals in your network who are in a similar role. Like, you know, if I want to be, let's say, a senior accountant on a finance team, what's the kind of compensation that I should expect to ask? Or like, what should I be expecting in terms of compensation? Right. So ask other people in your network. They may have a good idea, Right. If you know of people that are like CFOs, like if you have that kind of relationship and you're lucky, right? Like ask them, hey, what should I be looking for in terms of compensation for this particular role? And then like, if you ask enough people and you have like, you'll have a, a data set that gives you like a range, right? Some, some people will say, as a senior accountant, you should be asking for a hundred grand. And then at the other end, they'll be like, as a senior accountant, you should be asking for 115 and anything in between right? You should ask for what you're comfortable asking for, right? Like there's no better person that knows your work history better than you, right? And you could very well be like, after those conversations, be like, fuck, I've been underpaid my entire career, right? I want to make a change, right? So like, that's one way to collect data. Another way to collect data is to join like sites like Glassdoor or uh, Payscale.com, right? They can give you a general sense, or you can just Google it. For instance, talent acquisition. What does a talent acquisition specialist make in Toronto? If you Google that question, I almost guarantee you it'll give you an answer, right? So Google the question, right? And then if that's a, if that's a salary you're comfortable with, say that's your range, right? And if like the the company has any sort of integrity. They'll, they'll let you know whether you're inside or outside of the range, right? Because every company has its own compensation philosophy, 
right? And compensation strategy. So what may work for my company may not work for your company and vice versa, right? So it's like, again, it's all highly situational, right? But tech in Toronto, generally speaking, is pretty aligned uh, when it comes to compensation. So even if it's like third-party data, as long as you like put it like in Toronto or wherever that you're located, it should give you an a- somewhat of an accurate number, even though it's like third party is not like an actual person you talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if t- Toronto isn't a large enough data set, you can use Canada, right? And then just basically plus minus, you know, 10 to 15%, right? Depending on where you are, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're in Toronto and it, like it gives you a Canadian average of like, let's say 60 grand, you can probably say, all right, I'll ask for 70, 75, right? But if you're in like Nova Scotia and it's like the national average, well, maybe not Nova Scotia. Let's say you're in like, I don't know, Saskatoon or something like that, right? Middle of the country where the cost of living is not as high. Like, you know, national average, maybe 60 grand. Like you could probably get away with asking for the national average. That's fair. And in terms of the first round screening calls, what do you specifically look for in a first round screening call with a candidate? And like, how do you usually rank individuals that do get the call? So we don't, we don't really do any stack ranking, which is what I think you're referring to. It's for us, it's just like whether or not somebody uh, achieves a, a minimum requirement. Cause like, I'm not going to say, you know, Sabrina is a better candidate than Jennifer who's a better candidate than uh, Steve, right? It's all the three of these candidates pass the general screening questions of whether or not they could do the job, what have they done in the past, you know, what projects that they, they were proud of, right? And then we also ask the compensation question, right? Like to see whether or not we're in the same ballpark, right? Because it doesn't make any sense to move people forward if they're way too asking for way too much, right? But generally speaking, we're looking for like, things that will help us predict future success, right? Like, have they done this before? If not, like, what are the kinds of things that they've done in the past that could indicate that they could be successful in the role? How, how many rounds does Cura do? Is it two or is it three? Or four? Uh, it depends on what you count as rounds. So if you count the talent acquisition screen as the first round of interviews, then we do a technical screen, which is basically an assignment or a test, right? And from there, like, you know, people will either do extremely well and move forward or they'll drop out because they they don't have the technical qualifications that we need in order for them to do the role. Right. And traditionally speaking, like that test is like not super hard. It's like pretty, it's, it's sort of like day to day, what you would be doing in the role and shouldn't take more than an hour or two to do the, to do the assignment. And then we do a team fit interview, right. During the technical evaluation and then a values fit interview. So, so you're in marketing, right. From a values fit perspective, we feel like if you and I share the same values, there's no reason why we can't get along and the value should be universal throughout the entire company. So it may be somebody from finance or the software development team that interviews you as opposed to somebody else on the marketing team for the values fit. And then uh, at Cura Systems, we are still fortunate enough to have our founders still involved in the interview process. So everybody gets to meet one of the founders. Uh, So you're looking at a total of four rounds. Okay. Oh, is this summarizing for me? So acquisition specialist screening, and then there'll be an assessment test to see if you can actually do the job. This is more for like the technical, right? Actually, every single single person that's joined Cure Systems has done a role-related practical test or assignment, right? Just to see whether or not you can do the job or have the capability of doing the job. And it's not like a trick or a hard test. It's just basically no. to see if you can actually do it or not. 
Yeah, exactly. Or if you care enough to do it. Oh, so some people don't even do it. They say, oh, I'm not doing this. Yeah, because like a lot of companies don't even like don't do a technical evaluation. And for many candidates, it's like, you know, they'll take the job that offers the path of least resistance. So the easiest, you know, job interview process or whatever, right? That's okay, right? Like that's that's their strategy for finding work, right? Other people might be, hey, I really want to get to know the company and under, I want them to see like the capabilities that I can bring to the table. And so, yeah, like I think some candidates self-select out, but others, you know, will not pass the, the technical capabilities test because they just don't have the experience or the knowledge. Right? You said the next interview is with the, the hiring manager, right? No, no, no. So it's talent acquisition screen, yeah. right? The hiring manager may get involved between the, the technical evaluation and the talent acquisition screen. Traditionally, they don't at Cura Systems, but they may decide to insert themselves. And that's the you know prerogative and right for the hiring manager, right? And then we do the technical evaluation. That's a, an interview in itself with a, a member of the, the hiring team that's part of that business unit, right? And it's usually paired, right? So the hiring manager will be involved with that as well as a peer in that group. And then the values fit interview, which is two people from any any other part of the organization to see whether or not you share the same values. And then a final round. And it's basically just a formality with one of our founders. All the hard stuff is done before you meet the founder. You will really have had to screwed up in some profound and extraordinary way if you get to the founder's interview and are eliminated at the founder's interview. Oh yeah, maybe insulted him or something. Yeah, or like, you know, yeah, this showed or demonstrated something that went completely against their values. Okay, fair enough. And what advice would you give someone in terms of like when they get deeper into the rounds? Like what type of, like, I'm assuming you ask like standard behavioral questions and all that stuff, right? So like mm-hmm. what type of advice that you would provide for people that interview? Yeah, I mean, I think people traditionally use the STAR method to answer behavioral questions. And if you don't know what the STAR method is, it's a short acronym for answering a behavioral question with describing the situation, which is the S, the tasks that were involved, the actions that you took, and then the result, right? That's that's STAR, right? Tell me if I'm right, right or wrong. You're the career coach here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Situation, task, action, result. Yes. And yes. Yeah, so going back, so they, they have their star stories, but let's say they do these stories effectively. What else are you looking for? Like we typically look for red flags, right? Outside, over and above the star stories, right? So, you know, if there appears to be a lack of authenticity or integrity, like, because you can tell like when somebody's lying during the interview process, that's a big one. Another red flag is communication. Right. So even if you are telling your star story, but you don't tell it well, right, you're unable to articulate your thoughts and ideas in a coherent way, then that will be a, a red flag for us because it means that if you can't communicate something that you've already experienced in the past, it's highly unlikely that when you're given a new environment or a new task to work on, that you'll be able to work with others and communicate effectively to get any task or or result accomplished. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So like just being authentic and just communicating well and like presenting your star stories in a easy to digest way. Yeah. Not just easy to digest, but like in a way in which, you know, you are able to really highlight your, your, your capabilities or, or the things that you truly value. Right. Cause like when you're, when you're being authentic, you, you talk about the things that you care about. Right. 
and why you did such a good job on this project. I really, let's say, I really care about attention to detail. And so I really, really scrutinized each line of code. Like if I was like a, let's say a programmer, right? And really looked to ensure that there were no quality errors or something like that. I don't, I'm not a developer, so I'm just like pulling stuff out of the air, right? But uh, you want to be extremely clear and like showing what you care about as well uh, to demonstrate your authenticity. What's usually uh, the general like timeline in terms of like once the f- final round happens with the founder, when do you usually give an offer to somebody? So we will turn around an offer within 48 hours or 72 hours. Like I like to say 72 hours, like, like realistically though, it's like three business days, right? But we will call to confirm whether or not this is like an actual role that you're interested in receiving an offer for. We'll call you, we'll provide you the details and ask you, hey, Max, this is this is the offer. Is this okay with you, right? Because we want to make sure that your compensation expectation and what we are able to offer is aligned. Because like, there's no point in putting together all that paperwork if at the end of the day, Max, you're like, I, I don't think this is the right comp for me. You know what I mean? So like, we want to make sure all our ducks are in a row before we provide the paperwork. We'll do that call within a couple business days of your final interview. Right. And let you know, like, usually we're so excited, like when somebody passes the final round that like, as soon as we find out, we'll send you an email saying, Hey Max, guess what? I have good news. We'd like to make you an offer. Can we have a chat? And then we'll book a conversation with you. Yeah. The reason why I asked this question is a lot of people get ghosted, so to speak, right? Like sometimes Mm -hmm. like a week or two weeks and still nothing. And sometimes the offer might take a long, a lot longer, but you're saying like, if someone really wants you, the, the turnaround time should be fairly quick. Yeah. Again, I think it depends on the circumstances. Like I've been in situations where, you know, not at Kira, but in other businesses where we really liked the candidate and we wanted to make an offer, but something happened within the business and circumstances changed, right? Let's say the hiring manager decided to leave the company. All of a sudden we have like this new hire, but then the hiring manager is no longer at the company. Like then we have to figure out, okay, does it make sense to still bring this person on board, right? Who would they report to? You know, and then being transparent about it, like, oh, the hiring manager took a new job somewhere else, wanted to let you know, do you still want to join the team? Because a lot of people joining a new company, it's because of the hiring manager, right? They're like, oh, this is somebody I think I could work for, right? And then having the candidate have the opportunity to meet the hire, the next, the new hiring manager, potential hiring manager, right? So it's like, it, it really depends, right? Like, but I, I do think that you should be hearing within three business days to a week. It's unfortunate that candidates get ghosted. At the final round, I find it really, really hard to swallow. Like really, really like that bothers me a lot. If you're at the final round and you don't receive a a phone call about an offer or like like what's going on and you, you send emails and ask like, hey, what's the situation? And they don't respond to you. That's really fucked up. That's my next point, right? What's your thoughts on thank you notes and follow-up emails if you haven't like heard anything? I think they're they're a best practice for sure, right? Saying thank you, showing that you're polite, like, you know, easy to work with, like, and it doesn't have to take much. Just be like, hey, Max, thanks so much for meeting with me. I really learned a lot about the company. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Joe, that's it. Like, it's literally two sentences and it's like, it's demonstrated gratitude and the offer of providing more information if needed, right? Like what better like sort of follow-up can you do than that, right? Really, there isn't anything much, you know? All right, and since you, you don't like people getting ghosted, I'm assuming like 
the ones that are that go further in the process and they don't end up getting the job, then you would like let them know, right? Yes, yes. I believe that if you get past, if you if you get to at least the technical phase of in our interview process, you should be like uh, made aware of like potential reasons why you didn't pass, right? Typically speaking, it's like it's not hard at the technical stage. It's like oh, you didn't qualify because you know you didn't have the technical expertise that we required based on the on the test. I I won't have any specific exam- examples why, but if you need me to find out, I always and my team always offer to find out that information for you so that you can know where you went wrong on the technical aptitude so that you the next company that you apply to, you can take those skills with you. Uh, speaking of next company, if someone does not get a job at your company, what do you recommend in terms of like wanting to apply again in the future? You should always apply. Like Cure is a great goddamn company. I love this place, right? So just because like you didn't get the role that you had applied to, like doesn't necessarily mean you can't work at this company, right? And in fact, like I like seeing people that apply to something else because they like the company so much, right? Based on their first interview experience, right? So that's a real testament to the interview process and, you know, all the hard work that the company has done to build like a great place to work. So the question I'm trying to ask is, so when can you apply for another role at the company? Like, is there a gap period or it doesn't matter? You can apply right away after you've, you've you, you can You can apply right away. Just don't apply to six different jobs at the same time. Okay. So that, that was actually one of my previous questions. Like how, how many jobs can you apply to at once in a company? Because like some of these roles could be like, you might be qualified for this role and this role. I think... You know, you apply to the role that you want more. If you have like two jobs that are posted at the same time, you apply to the job that you want more or more closely aligned with. Because typically speaking, like like I said, on my team, like one talent acquisition professional supports the entire business unit, right? So they'll know whether or not based on the conversation with you, hey, Max, you know what? You might actually be better suited to this role over here. Would you be interested in going through the process for that? Like, I didn't feel like this was a particular fit, but this one might be a better fit. Would you be okay with that? And and that's typically the reason why my team supports the same business unit as opposed to like doing just whatever job that comes in, right? Like we're more strategic about how we approach talent acquisition. So with that being said, so let's say I I apply the role and I get the rejection email because I wasn't qualified and my resume is on file. Would you reach out to me later for a role or no? It'll depend, right? Like it'll depend on like whether or not talent acquisition professional remembers you for like a similar role. Like pretty traditionally, we do do a, a, a scrape first of our own applicant tracking system to see whether or not there are qualified candidates in there to reach out and say, hey, would you be interested but due to like new things like GDPR and stuff like that, it's like making it harder and harder because like people's like information and confidentiality are really important to them. So they may decide if you reject me for a role, I don't want you to contact me again. Right. So it really depends on like what your threshold is in terms of like being contacted by us in the future. Wait, what's the acronym? I'm not that familiar with it. Let's see here. The General Data Protection Regulation. It's a regulation in EU law on data protection and privacy in the European Union, but North American companies who do business in Europe are adopting GDPR as well, right? So it basically allows for people to opt in or opt out of being contacted in the future by companies, regardless of like 
whether or not it was as an applicant or as a customer. Got it. Okay, makes sense. Where do you want to see like hiring like go in the future? Like I, I'm assuming your company that hasn't done the the bot interview, right? Where it's you you send a link to a candidate and then there's these five questions and then you record your answer. I know some big companies are doing that now. Would you ever go that route or would you still want to make it human? Uh, you know what? I don't know, but I, I do. I can tell you this: like, like those companies, those large companies that do that already have a reputation in the marketplace, right? You know who they are as a brand. Uh, you might know them as an employer. You've heard stories about them, right? For smaller companies like ours, like Kira Systems, like we're still the first person that you'll ever meet in the company, right? Uh, unless like you're referred into the company by one of my colleagues, right? You know, I think the face-to-face -face interaction is really important, not just from our ability to assess you as a candidate, but for us to be able to show you and share with you what it's like to be a part of Kira, right? Like, I want to share with you, like, what makes Kira so awesome, right? What are the kinds of people that we hire? And like, and, and just be as transparent with you so that you know everything about the company. Because like, when you take a new job, it's a huge decision, right? It's like, you know, something that will impact you for the rest of your life. I want to give you all the information that you need in order to make a good decision, right? And you can't do that with a bot. Or maybe you can, but it feels less, less authentic, right? And like some of the people that I hired, like when I first joined the company that are still with the company today, like I have very deep relationship with because we've become friends over that period of time. Yeah. So speaking of employee retention, you can probably agree to this. People tend to want to job hop every few years because you get more salary bump if you go to an external company than trying to stay internal where the raises are fairly small percentage-wise unless you get promoted. So mm -hmm. what's your philosophy on that? I think job hopping is not necessarily a terrible thing if you do it after three years. But if you're doing it after year after year, like after one year or 12 months or 18 months in a role, and then you go to another company and do it again. And then you go to another company and do it again. Like that to me tells me that you're more interested in you as opposed to us working together and building something, right? Like I told you from the very beginning, I'm building a great company. I want to be here for the long term. I want people who are of like mindset, right? Can you get a bigger pay bump by moving outside of the company? Potentially, right? But for many companies and Kira included, we try to stay market competitive for all our roles, right? Typically speaking, though, a lot of people make a move because they think that, um, you know, they can get a, not just a, a compensation bump, but a job bump, right? So that they can get from a move from a specialist to an associate or an analyst and from an analyst to a manager sooner, right? So it all really depends, but I don't think the grass is always greener. You know what I mean? Like like I know we have a great thing at our company, right? So for me to ever make a move from Kira, like I would have to be paid a substantial amount of money in order to make the move, right? Because I've already helped build this company into a great one, right? And I, I still feel like I'm learning every day, right? And I, I still feel like I can contribute to the growth of the company. So like, there's no reason for me to want to leave, right? But like I said, you know, money talks, like it would have to be like a substantial amount of money, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it's like the, the grass isn't always greener, right? It's where you water yeah. it. Yeah. 
And it's like, that's exactly it. It's where you water. I love that. Yeah. So you, you told me before that usually referrals, you hire a lot of your employees, your, your new hires through referrals, right? I wouldn't say a lot. I would say something like 20% of our hires came through referral. I think it was less in the past year, but anywhere between, I think, 10 and 20% is like average for a company, right? But you're more likely to get hired if you're a referral, right? Um, because like, as a talent acquisition professional, like I'm not just considering the candidate, but I'm considering my colleague too, who referred you in, right? There must have been a reason why they thought you would be a good fit for this role, right? So I will take extra amount of time to get to know you as opposed to that 30 second to two minute resume screen, right? Like I'll, I'll, I'll want to dig deeper and understand why. All right. And the one way to get a referral is if that person has worked with that other person fairly closely, but LinkedIn, if you're aware, a lot of these career coaches are very emphasizing on networking to get into your, your dream companies. Uh, mm -hmm. So how would you like build relationships with people at your company to get them to want to refer you? Again, they, they, you never work with them, but they're interested in working at Cura. Yeah, so I think it, it's, um, it's really important to develop these relationships in the first place to, to grow your network anyway, right? But for you, for instance, Max, like if I were you and I wanted to get into a particular company, I would... Start by reaching out to peers in the role that you're currently in, right? Peers in the role that are in the role that you want, right? And then also hiring managers and just be like, hey, I just was, my name is Max. I was wondering if I might be able to have 10 minutes of your time, you know, to have a coffee. I'd love to get to know how you got to where you are today and like what you, interesting things that you're working on. This is a company that I, I admire. I noticed that, you know, you've grown within a, your career trajectory has brought you to this point in time or this place. I'd love to understand how you did that. People love talking about themselves, Max. And if it'll only cost you like a $5 Starbucks, right? Like back in the days when we could meet face to face, right? It's a little bit more challenging now, but people are still open to Zooming and having these conversations. Okay, yeah, so it's more about just building that rapport. Yeah, again, like you said, people wanna talk about themselves. Like at the end, like how do you stay in touch with them? Because what I find is a lot of these people, they reach out to somebody and if there's no like job right away, they tend to fall off, like they, they end up not talking after, right? So how do you kind of build that relationship after the first conversation? Yeah, so it's I think it's just doing a follow-up. Like, you know, based on our, our last conversation, I remember you said you had an interest in this and then maybe sending them an article, right? Like on that thing that they talked about, love to get your thoughts on this, or I really thought, I really felt strongly about this. What are your thoughts about this topic, right? So that you're maintaining intellectual engagement, right? And so that they can remember who you were. Like, I think it takes at least two interactions or three interactions for somebody to remember you as more than just a, a passing coffee. Yeah, it's about that brand awareness. So then once you do enough of that touch point, eventually it'll be, oh, we have a role open there, you're interested. So then they reach out after, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, also you want to be able to demonstrate you're, you're, you're not a dumbass, right? Like, you know, like the things that you talk about are intellectually engaging. You're not selling yourself to them, right? The initial conversation should always be about that other person and their expertise and how they got there, right? And then you know, following up, say, hey, 
I really reflected on, you know, the conversation that we had. I'd love to understand how I might be able to do the same. Do you mind if we have another follow-up coffee uh, so that I can, you know, share a little bit about myself and the things I'm doing? And do you think that would be aligned to the company or the things that you guys are doing today, the projects that you're working on? When I looked at some of the Hero System postings, I do see the talent acquisition specialist as the person that posted the job. So you can actually send an email. So what's your recommendation or thoughts on that if a, a candidate applies and then wants to reach out to that talent acquisition specialist that posted it? I, I'm, I'm happy to chat with uh, candidates that are willing to reach out to me. You know, it's like, I'll, I'll take a look and see if there's a fit based on their, their LinkedIn profile. But if their LinkedIn profile doesn't give me a compelling reason to have a conversation with them, like I'll let them know. Like, you know, based on your profile, uh, I don't think there's a fit for this role, um, but thanks for your interest, right? Like, I, I feel like a lot of people do do the work without, send those notes, without doing the legwork involved to prepare for those conversations, right? Or do the work that makes me want to engage with you, right? It's not just about sending an email. Like you better have a good LinkedIn profile for me to be like, holy shit, like this person is somebody I do want to talk to, right? I miss this person like in my resume screen or when I was sourcing candidates, right? Like let help me understand why, right? Like one of the people that I hired into onto my team in the past was somebody I had screened out and then she wrote to me and said, hey, Joe, do you mind having a conversation with me? I'd like to better understand how I could be a better fit for a role like this in the future. I was like, good on you for wanting to improve yourself, right? Yeah, so we set up a conversation. I was like, you know what? Man, you have all the qualities I'm looking for for somebody on my team. Let's go move further into the process. And she ended up being like one of the best hires I had on my team. Nice. Like Again, when you uh, screen a resume, it's still a one-way conversation. But the fact that she reached out to you, it becomes two-way. So then she can actually highlight some of the stuff that you might not have picked up on, right? Exactly. Right. Like she basically asked the questions like, you know, oh, I, I didn't know this about my resume, but here are the things that I did. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Like, and then, you know, it turned out she had a lot of the expertise that I was looking for. She just hadn't put that information in a way that was like accessible to me. Right. So you always have to think about who your audience is going to be when you're writing your resume. Right. Like if you write a whole bunch of jargon and like a lot of acronyms, like, you know how you didn't know what GDPR was earlier? Like, I, like it was just like second, I was just like second nature, right? If, but imagine you were like a talent acquisition professional and you saw all these acronyms and you didn't know what the hell they meant. I'd be like, of course not. I'm not going to move this person forward, right? Because their, their resume is gibberish, right? So it's just like making your, you got to remember to make your resume accessible to people. Don't write in acronyms, write the whole thing out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like if something standard like KPI, I think people won't know what that is, but if something more technical... Still, write it out. I write out KPI? Oh. Key performance indicator. I want to know that you know what KPI stands for. So write it out. Write it out for sure. But like MBA or or CPA, I don't need to know those acronyms, right? Like, like that's pretty standard stuff. But like when it refers to something that you do in your day-to-day job, I may not know it because I don't do that job, right? And I'm the person that's looking at your resume for the first time. Right. So, and, and the first person that's typically looking at your resume. So if I don't know what the hell you're talking about, like it's unlikely you're going to be moved forward in the process. Makes sense. So what would you write to a talent acquisition specialist at your company? If someone wanted to engage with someone that posted a job, 
Like, what would be the, uh, like that, a good template message? That's just it. I, I, like I said, I, I, I fear that trying to use a template is like not a good move, right? Be thoughtful in your approach, right? Find out like, you know, the reason, like, like what purpose is, do you have when, when it is about you responding to a particular post? Like, why are you doing this? Are you trying to get more information about the role? Because I can respond to you about like that. Do you want to know whether or not I think you will get the job? Like you will know immediately after you apply because I'll screen you out or screen you forward. You know what I mean? So it's like you, you have to have a purpose for that reach out. There isn't really a great template. It's just more about like knowing your audience. Like what would make them want to respond to me, right? Yes, exactly. And like, and the, and the, and the thing, the fact of the matter is like, if, if you get rejected, and you want to know why, just ask the question, like what made me not a strong candidate for this particular role, right? And, you know, typically speaking, like any talent acquisition professional worth their salt is going to give you like some form of a response. Going back to the application from a LinkedIn perspective, I'm, I'm not sure if your company does it, but some companies you can apply via LinkedIn and you can also send your profile. Do you recommend people apply on LinkedIn so they can send their profile or... Does it not really matter? Because you're going to look at their LinkedIn anyway, if they're a good fit. Yeah, basically you can do it either way, right? Like LinkedIn is basically your online resume nowadays anyway, right? But if you're going to do that, make sure your LinkedIn profile is complete and has good information, right? Like I can't tell you the countless number of times where we've received applicants from like LinkedIn applications where the profile page was blank. Like it didn't provide any additional information that we require in order to make an accurate assessment of whether or not you could do the job. So like, yes, you can do that. You can use your LinkedIn profile. If you do that though, be sure it has all the information that you're trying to provide. Overall, this was a great conversation. I want to end it off with one last question. So this podcast is about helping people overcome challenges and roadblocks. So whether it's professional or personal, for you, what has been one of your biggest challenges or roadblocks that you faced in your career or personal life? And what did you do in order to overcome that to get to the next level? You know, this is something that I think I work on all the time still. And it's like one of my biggest challenges. And it's like, I think it's pretty important is being self-aware about your own biases, right? Like as a talent acquisition professional, like I started my career in a particular way, in a particular environment, and I thought that was the only way to do things. But it, it demonstrated that I had a particular bias towards a more outdated model of assessment, not in terms of like capabilities, but like pedigree, I guess, right? Like before I did care about what school you went to, right? And less about like what capabilities that you bring to the table. Now I'm like more self-aware about those things and trying to reduce my bias as much as possible. And it's a challenge every day. I'm like not a young guy, Max. I'm I'm in my 40s, right? And so like, can you teach an old dog new tricks? You can, but it does take time. And that old dog needs to at least have a small amount of self-awareness to know that they don't know everything, right? And so those are the things that I work on. It's like, that's my biggest challenge is like, I now know that I don't know everything and I, there's so many ways that I can improve. And I really look to my younger colleagues who have different approaches and different experiences and like diverse ways of thinking to help me be a better talent acquisition professional, right? So that's been my biggest challenge is like 
trying to put a hold on my own biases and like overcome them and remain open-minded and learning as much as possible so that we really do bring the best talent on board at Cura Systems. How would someone that's more senior, like for example, your age, work with younger people like the Gen Z coming up? Because obviously now, like as, as you get older, you're going to be working with the younger generation. So yeah, how would yeah, someone yeah. that's older work effectively with the younger generation? Max, that's a, that's a good fucking question, man. I, 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 don't have a, I don't have an answer for that, right? Other than like just trying to work with empathy, right? And like trying to understand what their position is and have them try to understand what your position is and like trying to meet somewhere in the middle, right? Like, like I can't tell you I know what it's like to grow up in today's work environment, like as a person just trying to start their career when the technical skills and requirements are way higher than they were when I joined the, the workforce. You know what I mean? Like if I applied to Cura Systems today, back when I was like, like a graduate, I would not hire me. You know what I mean? Like, cause the bar is so high, right? Like, like I can't imagine what the challenges must be like for new Canadians or, or people who are graduating or, you know, people who don't have degrees who are applying to roles, right? Who just have work experience. But I, I think, you know, if you work with some degree of empathy, uh, you can figure out a way to meet in the middle and like, I think both people will benefit. I have worked with a couple of clients right now that don't have a degree. If they apply it, but they have wealth of experience, you would still consider them or would you still want that bachelor's? 100%, 100% I would. Okay. Yeah. But before I might not have, right? Because that, that was an outdated way of thinking, right? That was an outdated model of assessment, right? Pedigree and education. But more and more, it's like, you know, people with a four-year degree from like a reputable post-secondary education aren't going to have the same knowledge and skills as somebody who's been coding and developing for the last 10 years. What education does is shows you a process or a way in which how to approach a problem, right? And so like, I think it's important to have people that have that formal education, but also people who have learned to problem solve on their own right? And have them figure out a way to work together because like you have two different perspectives and like, you know, the more points of data that you have, like the better ability you, you are able to solve problems, I think. And that's a great way to end the conversation. Just some little personal advice, right? And guidance to really grow yourself as a person. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Like uh, I'm, I'm still trying to be the best version of myself, Max. And like, you know, I hope that like, you know, I continue to be able to help other people and to continue to be able to grow as well. Nice. So how can uh, people find you online and or if they want to know more about uh, Kira Systems and what your company is currently doing? You can find me on LinkedIn, Joseph Kim at Kira Systems, obviously. You can go to www.kirasystems.com to find out more about the company and our platform and navigate to our careers page to really see what the company is all about. Like we literally try to provide you as much information as possible to make a good decision when it comes to a job. So, um, you know, check us out there. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the time. Max, it was a pleasure. And I hope we get to do this again soon, man. It yeah, for sure. Yeah. Fun. Like this is a, this is my longest podcast. So we'll see how, how much interest and downloads I get. <laughs> okay, cool. Take care, buddy. All right. See ya. Thank you again to Joseph for giving me more than an hour of his time to discuss 
job search strategies in general, and diving into Kira's hiring process in order to hire the best talent available to help Kira Systems achieve their business objectives. There was a lot discussed in this episode. However, the main message that I want to get across to my listeners when it comes to job search strategies is that there is no gimmicks. For example, you shouldn't stuff your resume with keywords because you think that it will increase your rankings in the ATS software. Every resume that gets submitted online to a job ad for Kira Systems and most likely a lot of other companies does get read by a human. So when it comes to the fundamentals, recruiters are looking for one thing, the closest match to what they're looking for based off the job ad that they have created with the hiring manager. So if you can tell a cohesive story on why you are the best match for the job, you should be able to get at least a first round screening. So again, there's no gimmicks, there's no secret sauce in terms of how to get an interview. It's about really knowing your career story and selling it on your resume in a way that will resonate with the reader and make them want to read your resume fully. If you go in with that mindset when it comes to your job search, you will get more results and stop blaming on things that you have no control over, such as the ATS. Again, this is Chan with The Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. If you found this episode helpful, I would really appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family to help support the show. I post new episodes every Tuesday on all popular podcast platforms. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, where I post daily content on topics such as job search tips, career advice, and personal branding. That's it for me, and I'll see you next time.